Hello, this is Javier Ayala. Please leave a message at this tone. Thank you. Bye. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Javier, this is John. We're supposed to be recording a podcast right now. I'm recording this, so I think this is going to be a funny intro. Okay, I'll call you right back. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Javier Ayala is the head coach at San Francisco State University and is also the head coach of the San Francisco Glens, who will play in the new rebranded USL2. Javier's soccer journey started in one of the roughest parts of the Bay Area and then took him all over the world and back. In this episode, you will hear him talk about how he was first introduced to organized soccer by way of unorganized soccer. You will also hear him talk about trying out in front of coaching staffs that didn't value certain types of players, a.k.a. Javier. And you will also hear him talk about his ideas for improving soccer in America. Now, this episode was a long time in the making. I know you guys have heard me say that before, but Javier and I have been communicating about recording this episode for quite a while. I think that we did certain topics justice. I hope that you guys enjoy it. There are a few episodes, previous episodes of the podcast that I mentioned during this chat with Javier, which kind of made up the the base of why we were or why we wanted to chat to begin with. So I provided links to those in the write-up of this podcast, and I have also provided a link to Javier's Twitter so you can connect with him and continue the discussion if you would like. All of that uh, is available on 343coaching.com. And this episode of the 343 podcast is supported and funded by 343coaching.com and specifically the premium education membership. That program is what helps to sustain and develop this podcast that you are listening to right now. So thank you to all of the 343 members. If you are not already a member and you are probably wondering what this membership thing is, what did these coaches sign up for? Well, let me tell you. The 343 Coaching Education Membership is the most powerful and effective tool that I have found to help build a possession-based team. Yes, I am a member and I have used this product myself for years. This can help you with developing a clear vision for your team, choosing the right activities, and yes, of course, it can help you coach your team to play possession-based soccer. 343 are the proven leaders in possession-based soccer coaching education in the United States. From training eight-year-olds to graduating academy players to the youth national teams and to professional contracts, 343 has demonstrated expertise at virtually every level of the development process. And the 343 coaching program shares what we've learned in order to help you reduce your own trial and error time. The 343 coaching education program is essentially a head start for serious coaches who are looking to take their teams to the next level. Over 3,000 smart coaches have already joined and taken advantage of this head start that our online courses provide. So now it's your turn. You can learn more about the benefits of the 343 Premium Coaching Education Membership and start learning today through our online courses 
by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, the word coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the 343 podcast with Javier Ayala. Hey, Javier. Hey, John. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? Good, good. Hey, did did you ignore my last call or did it go to voicemail on accident? <laughs> no, I, I don't know what happened. My my phone was in, I, it didn't ring. <laughs> That's funny. So I, I, I left you a message, but I recorded it, though. So it'll, oh, it'll, okay. it'll be a funny part of the intro. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so what's up, man? How are you? Pretty good, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm getting a slow start to my morning, drinking my coffee at 10 o'clock, but it's a good day so far. Yeah, I've been I've been doing the same now that the college season is over. Got a little bit more time on my hands in the morning, so it feels good to kind of just uh, sit back a little bit and, and relax. Would, would you guys typically train in the morning for the for the college team? No, we actually train mid-afternoon just because of – field availability it's kind of kind of tight on time so we usually train around 12 o'clock so usually come in in the morning do a little little prep some video and then get into training yeah and the reason why i ask is because my my only real experience with observing college programs is at cal poly and specifically when i was coaching the club team at cal poly the men's and women's uh, d1 teams would train either before or after when we trained. So we would be like on a field off to the side and uh-huh. we would train at seven in the morning, but the, but the D one team would be there from like six fifteen, you know, six fifteen AM. And, and they would be about, you know, a quarter of the way through their training by the time we arrived, which I was like, Holy shit. Like these guys are, are animals showing up at six o'clock in the morning for practice. And then come to find out now the club team is training at 6 AM because their coach, CJ Sigler, uh, is now an assistant coach with the D1 program. So he's got to, you know, be at both. So he's like, all right, well, the only thing I can do is just practice earlier. And I think now the D1 team trains a little bit later. I don't think uh, Steve Sampson likes waking up at 6 a.m. like Paul Hollick did. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul's, uh, he's intense, intense individual. I love what he does. But yeah, I could definitely see his teams getting up early and, and training at that time for a little <laughs> bit of mental toughness. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know Paul? I'm curious. Um, he actually, when he was at Santa Cruz, when he was coaching there, he tried to recruit me. So he was just calling me all the time and trying to convince me to go there. And I was actually pretty close because I had a couple of buddy of mine that ended up going to UC Santa Cruz and committed there and did really well, actually. And I just I just had too many other offers that I, that I was looking at. So I ended up not going there. So he tried to recruit you as a player? As a player. Yeah. Okay. Um... Yeah. And then... Uh, Okay, yeah, so, so I I, I, I want to learn a little bit more about you then. So, tell me tell me a little bit about your yourself, I guess, but specifically like your playing career and how you kind of navigated that you know that decision of where to go and and maybe if you can connect some of the dots, like how that led you to maybe where you are today. Yeah, of course. So yeah, my name is Javier Ayala. Um, I'm from the Bay Area, so local kid here. Um, specifically, I grew up in East Palo Alto, 
So in the peninsula, which you know, a lot of people get confused with Palo Alto. So it's two two very different cities, very different upbringings. So grew up in a little neighborhood where the majority of us were Latino, African American. So pretty pretty low income, and you know, humble beginnings. We ended up. I just remember my first memory playing soccer at my grandma's apartment complex and a bunch of kids around my age. And we'd just be outside all the time, just playing all kinds of sports, basketball, soccer, football. You know, we'd even play marbles. And that's that's basically where my passion for the game started, just being outside all the time, playing with the kids. And I come from a Salvadorian background. So my family, big, big, big time family in terms of soccer and their passion and watching games we would uh pretty much every sunday go uh, go to the park and watch all the sunday league teams play so the culture in terms of that with the latino community was was pretty big so it was awesome to see the older players play and the kids would be off to the side you know playing little 3v3s 4v4s having juggling contests all, all sorts of stuff so it was a pretty cool experience at least for me growing up as a kid just being in that environment and then as I got older, I was actually playing at the apartment complex room when I was around seven years old. And uh, this guy came up to me. It's like, hey, are, do you want to play some organized soccer? And I was like, sure. Why not? So he gathered up a team. It was an AYSO team. And uh, so we, we created a team. And the thing is, where, where I lived, there was, there was no structured league. There was no AYSO league. There was no competitive league in East Palo Alto. So, so we ended up playing the, in the city next next door to us which was menlo park so we basically had an ayso team made up of a bunch of latino kids and all the other kids are white kids and we ended up doing pretty well i was playing two years up so most of the kids were nine years old so played ayso for a couple seasons and then finally one of the coaches from one of the ayso teams started up a, 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 a competitive club team so that's when he kind of took me in. He was a, a Dutch guy, big soccer fan. Uh, I remember till this day when he uh, his favorite team was Ajax. And they played, I think it was like the 95 championship when they ended up winning Champions League. And I just still remember till this day him playing that that song, We Are the Champions, in the background <laughs> over and over and over again. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. So they they took me in, started playing competitive ball. And it wasn't until, you know, back then ODP was still pretty big. So, you know, they advised me to go play ODP and I tried out for the district team, made a district team, then went to the state team. And that's when it kind of really hit me like, whoa, some of these players are really good. So made the state team and they all started asking me like, hey, like, where do you play? You know, what club team? I'm like, oh, I'll play for Menlo Park Ajax. So they're all like, what? What's what's that? What team is that? Because they, they were all playing on these elite teams by then. So all of a sudden you had parents from other, from, uh, from other teams coming up to me and like, hey, do you want to join our team? And I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. And, and then what really, really hit me was all of a sudden, you know, with the ODP team, you, you, had, to, you had to pay fees to travel. So even though it was low income, they gave you a little bit of financial, financial help. There, there's still a cost to it. And, we're looking at it like I, I can't afford to play ODP. And so basically the family that kind of took me in advised me to ask my club teammates if their parents could help me out, you know, pay the rest of the cost. So 
I was kind of embarrassed to, to do this, but I was like, hey, I, I got to be able to play. I got I to gotta have a platform to, to play at a good level. So I ended up writing each parent a letter asking them for money, pretty much. And, uh, you know, they obviously very open. They, they helped me out. They gave me scholarship money. So I was able to continue and play on the state team and did well, made the regional team. And again, you make the regional team, you got to pay more money, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Which was which is crazy, but you know th- this was the, the system. So, you know, I'm playing, but then I'm really realizing the club team that I'm on. It's like a class three team, and kids again on the state team. Like you're wasting your time. You you, you got to move up to another level. And I just felt that loyalty with with the club team that I was with. You know, a lot of it had to do with friends and, and the finance part of it. But eventually. There's basically two clubs going back and forth trying to get me to go play on their team. And this is now my sophomore year in high school. So one of the parents finally walked into my mom's work and was like, hey, I don't care which team he chooses, but he's got to get out of there or else he's never going to develop into the player that he that he could potentially be. So finally, mid-year through my sophomore year, I ended up leaving the team and, and joined one of the stronger clubs in the area. And, you know, fortunately... Yeah, that gave me the platform now to go to Surf Cup, to go to all these showcases and, and be recruited by um I ended up going to UC Berkeley. I committed late into my senior year. I kinda was kinda late in that process, but was very fortunate to, to get that opportunity to go play at a you know, at a school where at the time they were still building, right? It wasn't really a powerhouse at the time. So um was able to go there for four years. You know, it was solid four years. For, for first year, you get that transition with the physicality, speed of play. But I was able to to adapt and adjust to the to the game. Um, and by started playing my sophomore year, was getting games in, and then I got pretty bad back injuries, so only played about half the year. Then junior senior year did quite well. Uh, ended up winning the Pac-12 championships back to back years and. Yeah, had had a good career, I think. Um, had some some injuries, some setbacks, but it gave me the opportunity to get drafted. So I, I didn't get I didn't get in the super draft back then. They had a supplemental draft, so I ended up getting drafted by Chivas USA. And when I got to Chivas, it was interesting experience. I wasn't fit. I came in. I think Martin Vasquez was the coach and and he actually had just left for Bayern Munich. So Preki came in and pretty much he pretty much cleaned the house. So I ended up I ended I lasted maybe about three weeks there. And then he ended up releasing me. Uh but that gave me the opportunity to come back home, train with the Quakes. And I actually was doing much better with the Quakes when I was training with them. But the thing is I, I was still enrolled in school. So it's always tricky being a senior trying to get on these trials and you have that second semester of your senior year trying trying to make a team. And I was in a situation where I was the first, you know, first person in my family to um go to go to a four-year school to begin with. And and to be able to graduate would have been even a better accomplishment. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind. And my mom really wanted me to graduate. So I, I enrolled in school and I ended up missing a lot of school because I was going on these trials and the Quakes had a trip to, to South Carolina preseason. And I, I asked them if I could, if I could stay and, and do my midterms and, you know, to 
they it made total sense on there and they're like hey do you do you want to be a pro or not like you know, you're on a trial basis you, you need to make a decision here so i, I decided to stay and I, I just thought i was so close to finishing up my school that i had to make sure that i was getting close to, to getting my degree so i ended up not going with them when they when they came back they didn't invite me back so pretty much that kind of stalled things for me in terms of trying to get into an mls team at that time so um we can keep going here. There's there's a lot more to the story. So I, wanna, I guess get it real go quick. Ahead. I want to I want to go back to something that you mentioned at the very beginning of your your story, because I feel like this is very important. And I don't think I've ever really pointed out this aspect or this culture aspect that I've noticed from my time, you know, in growing up where, where I live, which is, you know, dominated by our soccer is, is, is dominated by the Latino culture here where I'm from. Um, it's also something that I noticed was a common thread when I interviewed, man, it would have been like two or three years ago now, but when I first interviewed our three, four, three guys, uh, like Ulianas, Alex Mendez, um, Charlie Aguiano, but you mentioned the same thing that, that all three of those guys mentioned which was uh, when you first started playing soccer, you were just playing at a park and some guy came up to you and said, Hey, do you want to join the team? And so like, I've noticed that that is, that is part of like Latino soccer culture. Like, you know, it's just like you're at the park with your dad or with your family. And if somebody sees you and, and you know, they have a connection to a team, they're like, Hey man, like, do you want to come play with us on Sundays? And that's kind of how everything gets started. And, and, I don't know if that's uh, as well known or as talked about as like the beginnings for a lot of Latino soccer players, but I'd, I'd be curious to get your kind of reaction or, or, um, or thoughts on, on that topic. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's, you, you hit it right on the nose and I think that happens so often with even, you know, these bigger clubs when they're out recruiting, when they're out recruiting players, a lot of times there's a lot of talented kids that are just, out playing in the park or even even now there's you know they, they call them latino latino leagues where it's just latino teams are playing within themselves i mean I'm, i live in the east bay and there's a ton of those leagues out here they're not even playing within the structured norcal league or cysa and it's it's very prevalent in a lot of latino communities and a lot of it probably has to do with just the cost right it's a lot a lot cheaper to run it's a lot easier to just go to the park hang out with the family and to a little pickup soccer. I'd be curious to find out how, and we haven't gotten to your to your coaching experience, so I guess this is, um, you know, a little bit too early to ask this question, but I'm I'm curious how that's maybe impacted the way that you recruit or the types of players that you look for, based off of like your own experiences and what you see happening outside of the normal structure of like U.S. soccer. NorCal, like things like that. So when you see these unsanctioned leagues or these kids playing in the park, I'm curious just like how that plays into the way that you recruit players for where you actually do coach. No, I definitely, you know, all the experiences I've, I've had, whether it was a, as a youth player or trying to make it as a professional, I've definitely have taken all that into account and, and try to do the best that I can to really seek out talent and it's it's definitely the case in, in the way I do recruit. I mean, there's a lot of players 
that are either playing in Northern California, Southern California that don't even play for club teams. They're, they're playing high school because it's free. And then in the call it the off season, they're playing in an adult men's league team. And there's players, even in, even in our conference, uh, the conference that we play in that have that case and are one of the top, some of the top players that are playing. And the way I look at it, because we bring these kids in too, and you're trying to develop them, you're trying to teach them things. And, and it's, it's also unfortunate because they have raw talent, but they were never coached appropriately. So now how much more can they really develop? And it's difficult, but you can still make the best out of it. And you only wonder the potential these players could have had if they were in a structured environment at, at some point in their youth career to, to become better players. Dude, you 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 hit the nail on the head right there too, and it hits home with me because I I work with a a team of two thousand six boys, and it's mostly Latino kids. There's maybe like three or four white kids, and the team is comprised of you know basically half came from a Sunday league team, and the other half was an existing you know I think it was probably an AYSO All Star team or something that turned club. And so when they needed to recruit players, they merged with this, you know, Sunday league team. And so now it's, it's a, the, the team is, is very cohesive now, but they still play and they've, they've opted to play in the Sunday league, uh, in addition to the club circuit. And so, you know, some of the white kids ended up joining the Sunday league team and, and it's a whole different set of challenges for those kids because they're used to the structure and you know, you know, <laughs> uh, just like I guess maybe I don't want to sound like uh, I don't want to sound like an asshole here, but you know, like the just the the organization that comes with like playing in coast soccer league. You know, your your games start on time, and you have referees and things like that. So some of those problems didn't, or there was new problems for the kids when they were introduced to the Sunday league, right? Also yeah. on the field as well. So there's, you know, these raw, talented players, but the game doesn't flow the same way as it would in a co-soccer league uh, match. So it's like these players that are coming from that structured club environment are now having to adapt to this new style of game. And you see them kind of struggle in that. And then you get the flip side of that where you get the Sunday League guys that come over to the club environment and they struggle with adapting to the structure of you know like here's how the game is supposed to be played it's no longer a free-for-all and those players don't always shine in that environment so it's this weird like collision of of environments or cultures or however you want to describe it and uh it's it's just it's in a way it's exciting but it's also frustrating and I lost my train of thought with why I brought that up, but, um, but yeah, it's just, it's exciting and frustrating at the same time to, to kind of see those, those two worlds collide. Yeah. And, and I think it's, we, we have to notice that as a whole and try to see how we can bridge that gap. I think that's, that's going to be the biggest hurdle is how do we bridge that gap? The earlier we can do it, the better and try to find ways to, to balance both things. I mean, I have a player of my, current team now that's a jc transfer a good player and we had an individual meeting with him yesterday and he was just he just took his this season just to learn to learn to be coached and play positions because he just never had that when he was growing up because he just grew up in you know playing in the, in the latino leagues and you know he was he was fortunate to be able to go to school and now he's in in our hands and 
just teaching him is great, but it, it's also kind of sad to see someone at his age saying that. It, it's, it is. So tell, uh, tell everybody where you coach, because I, I think you coach uh, maybe one or two different spots, right? Yeah, so currently I'm, I'm coaching at San Francisco State uh, University on the boys' side. And I, oh, I've been there a little over two years now, so just wrapped up my third season. And I also coach with a San Francisco Glens PDL team. So we pretty much uh, had the, our first year last year. And I also coach a U16 boys team under the same umbrella, under the San Francisco Glens. So I've had that team for about two and a half months now. That's awesome. And you guys are somehow affiliated with, um, what's the guy's name? The ex the ex pro guy that does all the funny videos. Oh, so J- so Jimmy just joined. Yeah. So he's gonna be he's gonna be the technical director. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's exciting have him on board, and he he wants to get into coaching as well. So it'll be very good uh, for me to be with him and and just trying to navigate and learn from him because he has plenty of experience. You know, he's played in World Cups, he's played at the highest levels, won championships. So it'll be pretty exciting to pick his brain a bit, not only for me, but for the players that we're going to bring in. There, there was an, a moment probably like two or three months ago where I took a shot at, at, at Jimmy after he released like one of his little funny videos. And I, and I, I took an unfair shot at him and I didn't plan on talking about this cause I didn't, I didn't realize that he was involved actually. Um, and and then I got hit up in a, in a direct message from somebody that's really close to Jimmy and said, Hey man, like you don't understand his, you know, his stance and why he's taken the path that he's taken. And so I've kind of, you know, pieced together a little bit of his story and why he's ended up where he is, which is, you guys are going to be a USL team, right? Uh, USL two now, that's yeah. what they call it. Okay. So, which is, yeah, again, navigating all the names in the system is yeah. just crazy, but it is what it is. Yeah. So, you know, why, why he ended up or, or, or why he's in USL two instead of being part of like an MLS uh, program or, you know, part of U.S. soccer. And I've kind of pieced together a little bit of his story. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, this guy actually has an interesting story. And maybe I, I, I took kind of an unfair shot at him. So if I ever get a chance to apologize to him, I will. But if you ever see him, just let him know that, that and I'm sorry for that. I, I wanted to get that off my chest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we'll we'll do. And, and he does have an incredible story. I mean, you, you think because he made the World Cup team that he had an easy road, and it was far from it. You know, in terms of his youth career, college career, MLS career, he was always, you know, on the outside looking in, and, and he found ways to persevere and get to where he's at. So it, it's pretty cool to to see, and it's inspiring. So I, I had no idea either until you started telling the story to me. So yeah. Uh, okay. So now that, now that it kind of cats out of the bag and, and we know that you're a college coach, we know that you have the U16 boys and, and then you're also the USL two coach or PDL team, uh, coach. Um, let's, let's kind of dissect some of the stuff in there because I feel like there's a lot we can unpack. I stopped you about halfway through your own, your own story, but I'm curious what direction you want to go with this. So we can talk, you know, about how you got there, or we can talk about some of the stuff that you deal with, you know, on a day to day or, or month to month or season to season basis. I'm, I'm curious what route you would, you would prefer to go. Um, yeah, I know, I know there's a lot to cover. Um, I think it's still probably important for me to cover what led to where I'm at today. Let's do I think it. That's probably, yeah. So, I mean, I, we're talking about 
trying to make it, you know, to the in pro environment, right? MLS coming out as a college draft and and the type of player that I am and, and realizing trying to navigate those avenues and making it pro. So pretty much that small, you know, that window of opportunity getting into MLS is very small. If you can't get in, it's going to be very, very difficult for you. Um, so pretty much I ended up taking different routes. I, I spent a month that summer in France after my senior year, try to get on a team and agent took me out there because I had a friend who was actually playing in the, in the first division in France, which is pretty cool. So I was out there didn't pan out, came back, and all of a sudden, it's the fall, and I'm, you know, 22 years old, and where do you play? Where can you get high-level games to stay fit for the next the next tryout, right? So that, that was very difficult for me. I, you know, when I look back, I didn't have the discipline to, to make sure that I'm staying sharp and fit. So when the USL tryouts came out that, that very next year, I ended up trying out for four to five different teams, just traveling traveling to the Midwest, traveling to the East coast, just on trying to dime. latch on on my own dime. So just, again, I, I come from a very, very low income family. And so I would try to work our jobs just to save some money so I can go buy a flight, go buy for a trial, pay for my food. And then I would go to a trial and all I would say to myself is, Hey, if I get on a team, great. I can pay back the, the debt that I have. Right. And I would show up, I'd go train with the team for two weeks and, Pretty much when it came down to it, they'd say, you know, you're, you're just not physical enough for this league. You're too small. You're not, you're not fast enough. And it was just over and over again. It was the same thing. And in training, I do great. But then in the games, what are, what are the teams doing in games? They're thumping the ball up top. And what, what am I supposed to do? I'm not, I'm not the biggest guy. I'm, you know, my game is playing the ball on the ground, super technical game, you know, had a good IQ and that's, that's the way I played the game. And, it just didn't didn't suit me, and so Javier, can can yeah. I stop you really quick? Yeah, I'm. I I want to know more about. Let's see. I got I always have to be careful how I ask these questions because I don't want to seem like an asshole. Um, yeah. If I, I I'm and I'm also re, trying to recall some of the interactions that we've had um, on social media, and so I believe when I interviewed Justin Reed about some of the the diversity problems that we have in NCAA soccer, you tweeted something back to me saying like, you know, you're one of the the few Latino head coaches in NCAA soccer. And is that right? Was that you that sent that? Yeah, that was me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of came about in that interview with, with Justin Reed was that, you know, and my interview with Kai Edwards as well was that, you know, People like to hire people that are like them and whether that is personality or, um, you know, they prefer that same style of play or in this case, people that look like them. Right. So I'm curious, you know, you're flying all over the place to do all these trials and people are giving you pretty much the same type of feedback. It sounds like it was, you know, you're not physical enough. You're not fast enough. You're not big enough my brain automatically thinks that you're probably trying out in front of the same types of people. And I'm curious if you ever tried out in front of somebody that, you know, looked or spoke like you. I don't know. Is it, I don't know if that's the right way to ask the question either. No, I mean, I definitely did not. I mean, even, even the makeup of the teams, maybe there was like one or two Latin players on those USL teams, but for the most part, you know, you look at the coaching staff and, 
you know, most of them were white and played a certain style. And yeah, I just think that they, you know, how, how do you utilize someone if you're not playing a certain way? So I think started realizing that later on, I was, I was confused because even at the university level, we, we played possession-based oriented soccer. So it suited me and that's why I did so well. And now you're getting into an environment where pl- teams are playing completely different and you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, what's happening and, and why it's happening. And, and I think, you know, as I went on looking for teams, I, you know, I ended up playing in Puerto Rico. I traveled to Vietnam and I mean, I went everywhere. I ended up in Germany playing in the fifth division for a year. And when I got back, I was what, 20, I was 25 at that point. And I got another trial with Minnesota. I spent a, a month in Minnesota. They finally released me. I had a friend of mine who's playing at Sporting Kansas City. He's like, hey, just come by. You know, you're close by. Let's hang out. He's like, hey, do you want to do you want to train with the team? And I'm like, sure, I'm already here. So they they let me train. Spent another month with Sporting Kansas City. I was actually doing better there than I was doing with Minnesota. And and he's like, you get, you know, you got to stick around. You might make the team. I was so burnt <laughs> out. I was like, I don't know, man. I'm running out of money. You guys have a really good team, and they had an amazing team back then, and they still do. And I'm just like, it just doesn't make sense anymore. It just does not make sense. And then I had a really good, really good friend of mine that got a trial with Minnesota as well, and we're very different. He's very fit, very fast not that great on the ball. And I just told myself if he makes the team and I don't, and I didn't like, I quit. I am done with this. And sure enough, he got a contract two days later, got a flight back home and, and hung up the boots. Man, I did not expect that twist in the, in your story. Um, how, how long did it take you to get back on your feet after that? Oh man. I mean, you know, this, this is, still my passion obviously so it was very difficult for me because you know you grow up having a, a dream of playing at the highest level which which I had and you know I was, I was getting so close to it you know had a lot of pressure to make it family friends you name it so to to not be able to accomplish it was was hard you know I was trying to reflect okay what, what am I going to do now what am I going to do next and I think that's when the next phase of my career started and I started getting into coaching and, you know, we can talk a little about my coaching and and I think that aspect went completely the other way where I feel that things did go, did get in line and I took advantage of those opportunities and I'm where where I am today. Yo, I, I think I lost you for a second. Yeah, no worries. Um, I'm trying to remember the last thing you said before it cut out and I can't remember. <laughs> um, yeah. You were talking a little bit about your, your coaching and then how things have kind of followed a different, a different script or things maybe fell, fell in line for you with the coaching stuff. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty much what I was saying in terms of, you know, trying to make it to the highest level playing career just didn't pan out and you can have all the reasons and, things that might've happened and bad luck, or maybe I wasn't talented enough, whatever it could have been. Right. And then I think once I got into coaching, all of a sudden, you know, things did fall in place, but at the end of the day, I still worked my ass off to, to get where I'm at today. So I think all those learning experiences I had traveling the world, trying to make it, I put those into perspective and, 
didn't try to sulk about it and move forward and take my coaching career very serious. And now I'm at where I'm at today. Absolutely. Yeah. I think people underestimate like how important, um, you know, like the, there, there is like a luck factor. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but you know, like to be the one that gets chosen to participate in, in major league soccer when at the time, you know, 10 years ago when you were when you were getting drafted or 2005 when you were getting drafted there were what 10 MLS teams 12 MLS teams 25 guys per roster so you're looking at a few hundred spots uh in the in the in the professional landscape in the United States like to be one of those players that gets chosen you have to you have to get some type of uh like a lucky break um to either get noticed or get in front of the right person or to try out on the right day or at the right time or whatever. Right. So there, there is like that aspect to it. And when you flip that and, and you're on the coaching side of things, you have a little bit more control over your, your environment. And, you know, there's still obviously, you know, to get certain jobs and, and things like that, there's, you can, you can kind of go down that same path with, with playing, but, um, but with coaching just in general, you have a little bit more control over what happens, uh, you know, how you want to play, uh, the players that you're choosing, the, the route that you're going to take as a, as a team or as a coach. So uh, I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about, you know, how you decided to, to approach coaching based off of all your experiences as a player and, and just, a, a, you know, a member of the American soccer community. Yeah, of course. I think in terms of coaching, I think a little luck plays into it. I was very fortunate to to you know where I live here in the in the East Bay in the Bay Area. There there was a little small club, uh, and I had a mutual friend who was coaching an NPSL team. So I played for the NPSL team, and the head coach, his name is Muhammad, and he just happened to run a club here locally. And so he convinced me to coach one of his teams. And I started with like a U11 girls team and it was the third team, very small club, but was fascinating to me was just the education part of it. I mean, he, you know, he was DOC and it was every week we met every Sunday and talked about the philosophy of the club and the way the teams needed to play. And he was, he was almost like a dictator. He's like, everyone has to play the same way. So he was a firm believer in Johan Cruyff, you know, big Ajax fan. So he, he just over and over and over again, you know, bullying out of the back at U8, U9, you name it. He, he was, he was ruthless, but that's where I got all my education from. So I spent a lot of years under him learning and seeing, seeing, and, and he would prove it. He would prove that he could win with the limited player pool that he had and in the way we were playing. So to that, to that, I was very lucky to, to be exposed to him, right, and be able to learn and, and take my ego out of the way and learn as much as I can. And then the, the other factor was also, you know, I did play at UC Berkeley, and I was in the area, and uh, the coach who's still there, Kevin, Kevin Grimes, he, you know, he gave me the opportunity to be in a volunteer assistant coach at Cal, and then he's got a similar philosophy where he's very possession-oriented type teams, and when I was there as an assistant, we were very successful. We, we've, throughout the years, he's had a lot of guys go to the MLS or go to Europe. So I think just the education part of it was there for me to learn 
And I was already very passionate about the game. I played the game a certain way growing up. And uh, I was always very analytical in, in the way I played. So I think it all kind of went hand in hand. And I'm, I'm coaching the, the way that I see the game and the way that I've learned the game. I want to correct what what I said, and I don't want people to think that you know I'm, I'm putting this all on luck. It's more like matters of, matter matters of circumstance. So it's just like you know how your environment has kind of led you, uh, or or provided you the experience or the opportunities. It's not necessarily luck. Like it's not like playing the lotto, um, but it's more like matters of circumstance. I guess is is a better way to put it. So that was on my mind as you were talking. Uh, yeah, and and, and also. You know, I, I know we didn't really touch base on my childhood either. I mean, I grew up in an environment that was very volatile. I mean, again, I was the first one to gradu- graduate from college. Between now and now and back 10 years ago, there's maybe been one other person in my family that's gone to school. Um, so for me, that's why I feel lucky, just because I grew up in a very rough environment. And so for me to just to get out of that and, and be able to do what I love is just, you know, I'm truly blessed. Yeah. That's so awesome, man. Um, well, I, I, I try to keep these things to like between 30 and 45 minutes. We're getting close to the 40 minute mark at this point. And so I want to kind of transition into, you know, some final thoughts and, and some things that, you know, maybe we haven't talked about yet that, that are on your mind that you wanted to talk about coming in. So I'd be curious, you know, if, if there's a topic that we haven't gotten to yet, um, that, that you anticipated talking about or that you are passionate about and, and want people to be more aware of. Yeah, I think, I think we kind of touched it on it a little bit earlier. And to me, it's, we know the the system is very fragmented here in, in the United States with, all different types of levels and you know you got the youth academy you've got club teams you've got the pro pro league that's not quite right and we're always looking to see how we can better the game and i think the the easiest answer for all that and you know this is if you open the the system up then all of a sudden more resources are poured into the youth academies into the youth system overall and now you can pick the best players right so we're not there that the reality is we're not there. So it's like, what can you do as a coach, as a parent to, to make sure you're doing your best to, to get people opportunities. And, and I think there's a lot of youth club coaches out there that have maybe a lot of Latino players on their teams. Maybe you've got two or three or four who, who knows. Right. And I think it comes down to, you know, asking them how they are, like, what do they want to aspire to be? Cause you never know. You never know that I want to be a professional soccer player. It's like, okay, well, this is what you need to be doing. I want to play in college. Okay. Well, how are your academics? How are your grades? I feel like that outreach to, to those type of players is, isn't really, it's not consistent to me. I don't, I don't know. I just, I, the more and more I run into youth players or even the players that I have in my school, it just, there's, there's a, I don't want to use the lack of mentorship, but I feel like people can have an opportunity to to reach out a little bit more because I, I feel that that's the reason where maybe I am where I'm at today because I, I did have that help. I did have families come in and help me. I had older you know coaches, team managers that reached out to me to, to try to help me out to navigate the system, whatever that may be, whatever my goals were to be. Right. So I think, I think that's important. 
I also think it's important for people to understand how how rich the and I don't mean rich in money, but just uh, how how rich the San Francisco or Bay Area soccer community really is. Like like there is, you know, I don't know, I, I, I can't even put a number on how many players are there, but just the quality is is amazing in the San Francisco Bay Area. And to not have, you know, that professional outlet. I know the Quakes are there, but that's a little bit south. So, you know, I don't know if that serves the East Bay like it, like people probably think that it should. It's not like an NFL team, right? Like there's, uh, yeah. it, it, it doesn't, it's not intended to serve an entire market. Soccer's not like that. Um, but the soccer community up there is so rich. And I'm actually originally from San Mateo and that's where my dad still lives. And, oh, okay. And I remember when I was growing up, going to watch my dad play in the men's leagues. Actually, going to watch my dad coach in in the Sunday in the Sunday leagues. And I know we, you know, focus primarily on the Latino aspect of you know the 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 Sunday league or the kind of the unincorporated uh, soccer cultures. But pretty much every foreign culture has their own little facet in the Bay Area soccer scene. And I don't think that's unique to just the Bay Area. I think you can take that to New York. I think you can take it to Milwaukee. I think you can take it to LA. But um but like Sunday leagues are pretty much comprised of of, you know, cultural based teams. And and so I know that, you know, the Croatian community had a Sunday team and we would play against the Germans or we would play against the Mexicans or we would play against the El Salvadorians and and, and that's kind of what what the makeup of the league was. And it was very competitive, and I remember. Well, there's two things that really stick out in my mind uh, as far as stories from uh, men's league in the Bay Area are concerned. So, my dad actually had a very severe injury. He broke his leg in eight places playing in a Sunday league game because he showed up hungover, didn't put his shin guards in, and then somebody in a in a very meaningful game, meaningful, and I use it in quotation marks because it's Sunday league, right? Um, <laughs> went went cleats up on his shin, just you know, straight boot to boot to shin and shattered his leg and so there's pictures of my dad getting taken to the to the hospital in the back of a truck and they have him in a wheelchair and there's like three guys in the back of the truck holding him in place so that he doesn't fly out of the truck it's hilarious but devastating memory wow. right? so that's how much it meant to to my dad and to you know the other the other croatians like you know they're willing to break their legs for for this sport um and then the other one was you know, it was so competitive uh, in that league, and it was just a Sunday league, right? So these this Croatian team uh, wanted a competitive edge. They needed a goal scorer. So what did they do? They started paying this Mexican guy to play forward for him. So Sunday league, you know, they were giving this guy a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks per game, and if he scored goals, they would give him another hundred bucks or whatever it was. I don't remember the exact price, just so they could have an advantage in the Sunday league. So it's like that's how far they were willing to go in order to get wins, and that's what it meant to them as as a team or as a group. Like they wanted to finish in first place. That's how much it meant to them. And so those those two stories are kind of like the things that stick out to me the most when I think back about you know Bay Area Sunday league soccer. So, well, not, not nothing much has changed. I mean, th- those leagues are still going around. Players are still getting paid, uh, and they take it very serious. Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't gone up to to watch any like the Sunny League games, but I know that the Croatian community still hosts a uh, a tournament. So, 
in yeah in San Jose at the church they built like a small field a turf field at the church and they host either a 4v4 or 5v5 I can't remember the exact numbers but they host like a small Croatian tournament on on different holidays whether it's Labor Day or Memorial Day whenever whenever it's a three-day weekend and actually that tournament kind of travels too so like sometimes it's in LA or San Pedro or you know sometimes it's in Canada or in Arizona and like all the Croatian um teams that play in these different Sunday leagues all over the place where they get together once or twice a year to play in just like a Croatian only tournament. And it's really cool. There's a lot of history there. And, and then it usually ends up being a huge party. I know in, in, when it's in San Pedro, they shut down the street where the Croatian hall is and, and it's just like a big festival. It's really cool. But, uh, and again, I don't think that's unique to just the Croatian community. I think that many other cultures do that. It's just, (coughs) sorry. Um, you know, I I don't think that that's as embraced as it should be when it comes to the greater American uh, soccer picture. No, you're you're 100 right. I mean, there's it happens in almost any big city here in this in this country where these kind of events are going on, and it's, no one talks about it. No one, at least in the mainstream soccer media, talks about these cultural events that are going on in the game of soccer that everyone else is playing. So. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yes, and, and and just like one last final thought, because I want to get this out there. I I attended a wedding in San Francisco over the summer, and in the hotel we were staying at was down the street from what is it? U- is it Union Square in downtown San Francisco? Yeah, like yeah Union plaza. Square. And mm-hmm. so Street Soccer USA was hosting an event, and so I you know had some time to kill, so I just walked over there and and was checking it out, and very cool. Like they rented the entire square, and they had two fields set up, and there was music, and I was kind of looking around, I was like why aren't more people here? Like, this is kind of cool. Even the people that were just walking by weren't, didn't seem to be very interested in it. And there were a couple teams like warming up, waiting to go in. But I was like, man, like this is, this doesn't feel right. There should be more people watching and more people interested. And then I compare that to, you know, the Croatian festival when, when we shut down the street and everybody's, you know, partying and everybody's, you know, just so enthusiastic and involved and, you know, two very, very different environments. And so, you know, that kind of tells the story of American soccer in a way, right? So it's like, you know, here's this, you know, organization that's very professional and very in tune with, I I think, you know, uh, the American soccer environment. I know that they're trying to, you know, target a certain demographic and help a certain demographic, but they are, you know, a, a certain type of program. And, and then you have like this, you know, just this soccer rich culture that's already built in these, these, you know, crazy Croatian people that are willing to kind of do or, or, or yeah, do whatever it takes uh, when it comes to soccer. And here they are, it's already built and, and, and that, and that culture is not being embraced. And, and I know again, it's, there's other cultures that have that Latino cu- culture, German, Pol, whatever, English, you know, those cultures exist and, and those cultures aren't as embraced. And then you have like these kind of sterile environments and and see i hate that i'm saying this because i don't want it to sound bad against street soccer usa but it that's just kind of how i see it so i needed to get that out of of my brain sorry sorry to dump <laughs> no, it on you <laughs> no no that, that's fine and you know they they're doing great things like like you said they hold events in lower income communities in san francisco as well and shoot they they hold that street soccer usa maybe a little bit south of san francisco in the mission district and maybe they partner up with the community there and they'll end up getting 10 times more people out there. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hey, well, this was a long time in the making. We've been, we've been talking about this for a while. 
<laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm glad yeah. we're, we're able to make it work. Yeah, thank you for thank you for your time and and uh, how can people how can people connect with you if they want to reach out? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, JAV910. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, Ayala.hov. And that's that's about it. I'm not too active on social media, but I'm trying to do a better job of being a little bit more active and a little bit more outspoken. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to, to your voice being an important part of the conversation because I, I think that you're an important voice, man. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And a big thank you to Javier Ayala for coming on the show and sharing his stories and his thoughts. If you would like to find links to the other episodes that I referenced during this talk with Javier, if you'd like to find links to connect with Javier on social media, or if you'd like to find more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, which is what sponsors this podcast and helps to sustain and develop this podcast that you're listening to right now, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, .com. And to talk a little bit about his experience with the 343 Coaching Education online courses, here is Tom Byer. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student and as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I like about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop. Um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. Once again, you can find all of the information about the 343 Coaching Education Programs by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343, the word coaching, all spelled out, .com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.